This is Holistic Health Masterclass Podcast, and I'm your host, Brett Hawes. Uh, thank you for tuning in today. And uh, it's been a while since I've published a podcast. Uh, so January 21st, um, I was going back and just looking at that. And, uh, you know, the without getting into it, um, the, the short end of the story is there has just been so much change going on uh, in my personal life, um, but also so much change going on in the world around us. Um, we've had to, you know, schools were shut down. So we had to homeschool my son um, really up until two weeks ago. Uh, I was teaching. Um, clinic has been busy. I've built a new studio and office space um, in my house. So there's just been so much stuff going on that uh, podcasting was really uh, quite low on the totem pole. But I am delighted to say that we are uh, back on track. Um, things have settled down on many fronts. And uh, podcasting and the show is now going to be moving forward on a weekly basis. Um, as I uh, mentioned back in the beginning of January. So, um, so much has changed. Oh my gosh, so much has changed, um, even just in the last month. And uh, it seems like uh, any which way you cut it, um, there just seems to be no break with uh, anything related to the pandemic. So this particular podcast, I'll get into it in just a minute, but this particular podcast is really going to be focused more on, um, you know, the, the health freedom, pandemic, COVID side of things. And then we're going to alternate between these types of shows and then also um, health related shows. Okay, so uh, I've got a really great show coming up next week, which is all about carbon C60. And uh, I think it's uh, pretty mind blowing once you get into C60 and how it works in your body. But today's podcast is uh, titled The Contagion Myth. And this was a book that was written by Dr. Thomas Cowan and Sally Fallon Morrell. Uh, and I'm going to get into their bios in just a minute. But this book and this podcast will be quite controversial. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to, um, you know, <laughs> mince my words there. And um, I think the, the fundamental premise of this podcast is really to say that uh, the COVID, um, well, sorry, SARS-CoV-2, uh, the virus has actually not been isolated. And that's one of the fundamental premises. And then, of course, the other one is the effect of electromagnetic frequencies, right, so 5G, coupled with uh, pre-existing diseases, toxins, et cetera, et cetera, and um, how that manifests as COVID-19 uh, symptoms. So that is a sort of, these are the overarching themes that will uh, essentially dictate this entire podcast. Now, um, you know, let me let me tell you why it's controversial, right? So first of all, the book got um, pulled by Amazon. Okay, so the book, The Contagion Myth, I'll put a link down in the show notes, you can check that out, um, basically got yanked from Amazon uh, within a very short space of time. I can also tell you that some of the live streams that um, Dr. Tom has done, um, so he's done some live streams uh, with um, RFK, so Robert F. Kennedy Jr. from Children's Health Defense, and he's done a number of others, and uh, basically these have also been pulled from uh, YouTube and so forth. So the information that we share here is very compelling, okay? So I would encourage you to at least listen to this with an open mind. I will also say that I don't necessarily agree with every single word that we discuss in this podcast, but I wanted to give this podcast airtime because I feel that 
you know, when you think about science on at, at its basic level or the fundamental principle of science is in fact questioning, right? That's how science works. We suspect something, we question it, we come up with a hypothesis and then we investigate and we see if we're right or if we're wrong or which parts of um, our hypothesis are wrong or right. And then we move from there. And this is really how we have evolved uh, from a scientific standpoint. And I feel like what's going on right now is it's almost hearsay to to uh, question anything. And the mere thought of saying that this virus has not been isolated or that it's based on computer modeling is just completely outrageous to some people. You know, you are essentially just a conspiracy nut um, and, you know, th- there's no founding to what you're actually talking about. And what I will say is the research and the information that uh, Tom and Sally have put together in their book is very, very compelling. So don't dismiss this. And I would encourage you to pick up a copy and actually read it for yourself. All right. Obviously, this is a one hour uh, synopsis of the book. Right, so some of the highlights of this episode and basically some of the areas that we touch on, uh, we touch on um, obviously isolation. So we actually spend a good chunk of time defining what isolation actually means and how we go about isolating a contagion. We also talk about, uh, obviously, as the book's title is called, Contagion Myth. And uh, this is where um, I think I might not necessarily disagree, but I don't fully agree. Uh, essentially, you know, the, uh, Dr. Tom is essentially saying that no contagion has ever been isolated. All right. And we get into the germ theory. We talk about Louis Pasteur for a little bit. Um, we also talk about exosomes, right? So exosomes, um, again, I'm not going to explain that here. You can listen to the podcast. Uh, we then talk about the impact of electromagnetic frequencies. We talk about 5G. We talk about the rollout of 5G around the world and how that kind of maps onto um, the outbreak of, um, you know, COVID-19 and the pandemic. Um, And then we, of course, talk about um, how this all ties in with people with pre-existing disease, with toxicity, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Interestingly, you're also going to hear that a lot of the pushback that um, they have got uh, about the book has actually come from the natural medicine, the health and wellness industry, um, and people really, um, you know, in alternative medicine have really pushed back the hardest, which I I thought was was quite interesting. So just a little bit about our guest today. Uh, Dr. Tom Cowan is a medical doctor. Um, He uh, graduated in 1984 from Michigan State College of Human Medicine. Uh, He had a family practice from 1985 until 2019, uh, first in upstate New York and then in New Hampshire and also in San Francisco. Uh, He formerly served as vice president of the Physicians Association for Anthro posophical medicine and was a founding board member of the Weston A. Price Foundation. He continues to serve as its vice president. Dr. Cowan has given countless lectures and workshops throughout the U.S. on a variety of subjects of health and medicine. He's the author of six books, so five of these spend time on Amazon Amazon and or Barnes & Noble bestseller lists, and each was ranked number one in their respective categories, often for many months. Uh, some of the titles of the books here include The Fourfold Path to Healing, The Nourishing Traditions Book of Baby and Child Care, Human Heart, Cosmic Heart, Vaccines, Autoimmunity, and the Changing Nature of Childhood Illness, and Cancer and the New Biology of Water. Sally Fallon 
is actually someone that I got introduced to uh, many, many years ago when I first started studying nutrition. Um, one of the books that we had as part of our, our training was actually called Nourishing Traditions, and this was written by uh, Sally Fallon. So Sally is a journalist, a chef, nutrition researcher, homemaker, and community activist, and as mentioned, also the author of the book Nourishing Traditions, the cookbook that challenges politically correct nutrition and the diet dictocrats. This is based on the work of uh, Dr. Weston Price, and of course, she has also gone on uh, to be the founder of the Weston A. Price Foundations for Wise Traditions in Food, Farming, and the Healing Arts. This is a nonprofit education foundation based in Washington, D.C. Uh, she's also the editor of the foundation's quarterly magazine. She's also founded a campaign for real milk dedicated to creating consumer awareness of the health benefits of clean, whole, unpasteurized milk from grass-fed cows. So our guests are very, very knowledgeable. They have a long, steeped history here, and uh, they're very well educated. And uh, so I think that, again, I want you to listen to this podcast with an open mind at least and just consider some of the things that we're talking about. Now, what I'm also going to do in the show notes is I'm going to link to a document that is from Health Canada that basically shows you, and it says this is straight from the government, that through a Freedom of Information Act, when questioned and when asked for proof that the virus has been isolated, they have no proof. They basically say that this has not been isolated. We don't have any proof for that. Okay, so the last piece that I'm going to read is from uh, a guy by the name of Robert Oswald, who has a PhD in virology and immunology. And uh, he released a statement back in December um, that went semi-viral and, of course, since then has just been yanked from the Internet, has been shrouded in all kinds of mystery. And I'm just going to read it, but I will just say that this does need to be verified. And the reason why I'm reading it is because it ties in with the topic of today and it also ties in with the Health Canada um, document that you can download. Uh, uh, you know, Again, that was obtained through Freedom of Information Act. So this is Robert Oswald's statement. I have a PhD in virology and immunology. I'm a clinical lab scientist and have tested 1,500 supposed positive COVID-19 samples collected here in Southern California. When my lab team and I did the testing through Cox postulates and observation under a scanning electron microscope, we found no COVID in any of the 1,500 samples. What we found was that all of the 1,500 samples were mostly influenza A and some were influenza B. Influenza B, but not a single case of COVID, and we did not use the PCR test. We then sent the remainder of the samples to Stanford, Cornell, and a few of the University of California labs, and they found the same results as we did, no COVID. They found influenza A and B. All of us then spoke to the CDC and asked for viable samples of COVID, which CDC said they could not provide as they did not have any samples. We have now come to the firm conclusion through all of our research and lab work that the COVID-19 was imaginary and fictitious. The flu was called COVID and most of the 225,000 dead were dead through comorbidities such as heart disease, cancer, diabetes, emphysema, etc. And they then got the flu, which further weakened their immune system and they died. I have yet to find a single viable sample of COVID-19 to work with. We at the seven universities that did the lab tests on these 1,500 samples are now suing the CDC for COVID-19 fraud. The CDC has yet to send us a single viable, isolated, and purified sample of COVID-19. If they can't or won't send us a viable sample, I say there is no COVID-19. 
it is fictitious. The four research papers that do describe the genomic extracts of the COVID-19 virus were never successful in isolating and purifying the samples. All of the four papers written on COVID-19 only describe small bits of RNA, which were only 37 to 40 base pairs long, which is not a virus. A viral genome is typically 30,000 to 40,000 base pairs. All right, end quote. So that's, um, again, ties in with what we're talking about. And again, I'm just encouraging you to uh, listen to this episode with an open mind. So this episode was recorded a little while ago, and I sat on it. I didn't want to release it um, just for the backlash, which I'm probably going to get anyway. Um, and, you know, after speaking to a few people, they said, you know what, you should just release it anyway. And so here I am releasing this. So some of the stuff that you'll hear um, might be a little bit out of context because this is a, really a couple of months later now. Um, so obviously things are changing at breakneck speed all the time. So just uh, bear that in mind um, as you uh, get into this episode. So uh, thanks for tuning in, and um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, we'll be back next week with an episode on Carbon C60 and uh, get back into some of the health stuff. Um, as always, if you do enjoy today's episode, uh, please subscribe, leave us a review, share this with your friends, your family, and your community. And uh, thanks, as always, for your support. All right. So huge welcome. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on Holistic Health Masterclass podcast. Um, Sally fallon Morrell and uh, Dr. Thomas Cowan, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Um, obviously, today we want to talk about your book, which I thoroughly enjoyed, uh, The Contagion Myth. Um, I think it's going to blow a lot of people's minds. I'm sure it has been um, just with some of the concepts that you're putting forward, which I think anyone in the holistic or alternative space or in the natural medicine space is, is probably going to fully understand that. But I think for a lot of people who are buying into the current narrative, uh, into things like the germ theory and, and whatnot, and then witnessing what's going on in the world around us, um, it's probably going to be quite a jolt uh, to, to them. So uh, let me just open things up. Um, you know, I always like to uh, ask people, how would you describe what you do to someone? So perhaps we can start with you, Sally, you know, literally a one minute elevator pitch. What do oh. you do? Yeah. <laughs> well, the elevator pitch on the book is that um, there's no such thing as a coronavirus, but we're not minimizing the fact that people are really sick. And our theory is that this is the rollout of 5G wireless technology. Okay. So that's okay. our elevator pitch. Okay. And Tom, for you? Uh, I'm going to say something different here, which is I'm going to question what you said when you said that uh, the people who are in the natural medicine space and holistic health will, re will understand the book. My experience is that is absolutely not true. Okay, do tell. <laughs> the biggest criticisms I get are from uh, supposedly people who are holistic health practitioners and even including and particularly the anti-vaccine community, huh. who I would say has no clue. Wow. Okay. And you know what? That's awesome to hear because, um, you know, I think it's good to have open discussion about all these sorts of things. Um, that is really important. So I'm going to just, you know, start from ground zero. I've got a couple of notes here on the side because uh, I really want us to build this from the ground up. And let's just um, blow it open with what exactly is a virus? Why don't we start with that? I think it's good for Tom to start on that one. 
A virus is, uh, well, supposedly a piece of DNA or RNA encapsulated in a protein. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, while DNA viruses have been uh, found isolated and characterized, uh, although we can't distinguish whether they're from the outside or whether they're endogenously generated, otherwise known as exosomes. Uh, the RNA viruses are actually never been found or isolated. So I would even hesitate to say what an RNA virus is because it's like saying what a unicorn is. I don't know, because they don't exist. Yeah. Well, and, and I think this is a big sticking point, right? Because even today, um, I've you know got some well-respected scientists and PhD scientists and investigative journalists and uh, someone, well, I won't mention their name, but someone actually just published today, this morning, um, you know, we want to dispel the myth that pervades out there, which is that the virus has never been isolated, right? And of course, we're talking here today about, um, you know, SARS-CoV-2, which is, is supposedly causing uh, COVID-19. And so um, perhaps you can kind of like explain what that means exactly because i think perhaps there's some crossed wires with what does it actually mean to isolate a, a, a virus so if sally if you're okay let me do this one yep of course um, and this is the crux of the issue because uh obviously uh if you haven't isolated the virus you can't characterize the virus you don't know what the genome is and then you can't figure out whether it makes anybody sick, right? So if it hasn't been isolated, the whole thing is nonsense. Uh, so let me start this by saying, I, I think we can agree that a virus is a thing, like this fork, right? That's a thing. I, and and I, I would distinguish that from a thought or a feeling, because we can't isolate a thought or a feeling, or at least not in the same way, but we can isolate this fork or this pen and we can distinguish a pen from a fork because they have different characteristics. And a virus is one of those things. Now, here's another thing is a, a molecule called caffeine. Uh, so let's, let's, let's figure out or discuss or I'll tell you uh, how we know, how we isolate caffeine. And then we can figure out how we know whether caffeine causes, say, high blood pressure, right? So that's what we're trying to do. And this is what, how human beings who are rational think. So let's start with the hypothesis that the coffee, the caffeine isolated from coffee beans makes people have high blood pressure. So here's how we do that experiment. We take coffee beans and we grind them up. Now, nobody in their right mind would think if you give somebody ground up coffee beans, you've proven that caffeine in the coffee beans makes you sick. Why? Because there are other things in coffee. There's fiber, caffeic acids, aromatic oils, and probably a lot of other things. So Nobody would do that experiment. They would then say, okay, let's filter it. And you would say, here's the size of the filter paper, right? So that somebody else could repeat the experiment. You drip water through it. Then you get coffee and you throw away the, the grounds uh, part. And now 
you have coffee and, and then you still haven't isolated the caffeine, right? Mm-hmm. Because there are more things in there than just caffeine. And so if you did an experiment where you gave somebody coffee to drink, you couldn't possibly know whether it's the caffeine that makes them have high blood pressure, right? I mean, that's right. simple logic. So you would do the next step, which is you would put it through a centrifuge or a flow uh, spect- spectrophotometer or flow cytometry or something, and you would pull out just the chemical, the molecule that we call caffeine, right? And then you would prove it. You would send it to a lab or you would do your own lab. But meanwhile, you would be documenting the steps and you would then say, all we have is caffeine. And you would prove it. Somebody else could do those same steps, same size filter paper, same kind of centrifuge, same rotations, prove that you have caffeine, give that to 10 people, raise their blood pressure, that proves it. That's what a human being calls isolation. That process was done for 20 years with viruses. Once they had an electron microscope so they could see whether they were successful. Before that, you couldn't see it. Uh, So they did the exact same thing. They took snot, macerated it, that's the blender, filtered it, that's the coffee, centrifuged it, they came out in a band, they pulled the band out, they showed you a picture that you have pure virus, they exposed animals to it, none got sick. None. There is no experiment in the medical literature showing that the virus part makes any animal or human sick, period. Now, once they discovered that, virology was done. But they discovered that they could do this another way, which is they took the snot, they filtered it, so now we have coffee, they inoculated that on a tissue culture, they poisoned and starved the tissue culture, like monkey kidney cells. It's, it broke down into a million pieces. They see all these particles and they say that particle means we've isolated. Every single study, and I mean every study that the hundreds and now I'm getting a little sick of this because it's <laughs> like a thousand people have sent me the title saying isolation of the virus. Everyone did it like that. It's like saying, okay, back to our caffeine experiment. So I take coffee beans, I grind them up, I put it in a vat that contains chocolate and tea and I don't know, yerba mate or yerba sante, I think they have caffeine in it. And then I I stir it up for two days and then I find a piece of the caffeine molecule and I say that proves that this, the virus, the caffeine caused high blood pressure. That is scientific, philosophical, rational nonsense. And why the entire virology community, the entire holistic health community believes that nonsense is, is beyond me. But that's exactly what it is. And there was a $100,000 prize for anybody who could, using that procedure to uh, show an HIV, uh, which is a, the virus that supposedly causes AIDS, 
from somebody with AIDS. And I know the guy who put up the 100,000 very well. And I can tell you, he still has his $100,000. There is not one study that that is what we mean by isolation, period. Anytime you have a study and it says, I mixed it with Vero cells, uh, then you don't know where this, these particles are coming from. That can't possibly be isolation. The other thing I'll say here is, even if you can isolate it, it doesn't prove it causes disease. And even if you can isolate it, which they haven't done, it doesn't mean that it's not coming from your own uh, tissue. In fact, we know that the primers that they're using, like the spike protein primer, right? Everybody's heard of that. It turns out that that exact sequence, if you do a BLAST study, which a BLAST study means you, you in the Human Genome Project calls the BLAST thing. You can see whether that sequence is in the human genome. There's 93 identical sequences as in the primer that's being used to identify the spike protein. In <laughs> other words, we have no idea that this, these proteins and these uh, parts of the particle are not coming from the human genome itself because in fact, they are. Right. And so I, I definitely want to come back to that. You know, you, you mentioned um, exosomes and I know that, you know, Dr. Andy Kaufman, he's, he's been a huge, um, he's been making noise about exosomes uh, pretty much since the beginning. Um, so I, I think it would probably be a logical next step to help people understand what exosomes are and what are we actually picking up then? You know, if we're talking about viruses and exosomes, um, I know some of the quotes that you mentioned in the book, you know, they're, they're basically indistinguishable from one another. Um, so if that's the case, then what exactly is an exosome? Uh, what does it do? Uh, before I think Tom can answer that, but I would just like to add to what Please. Tom says. After they've done whatever they're going to do, what they're calling isolation, they show a photograph, electron micrograph, electron micrograph photograph. And usually what you see is some tissue with some membranes in it, and then these little particles that are like the drawings of viruses and they have arrows pointing to these particles. That's not isolation. Uh, we do have pictures of isolated viruses and all you see are the little round viruses. So you can tell by the photograph whether or not they've isolated the virus. Mm. Um, and of course, then, um, you know, sorry, we'll come back to exosomes in a minute. But of course, this is one of the criteria for Cox postulates, if I'm not mistaken, and for Rivers postulates, if, that, if, if I'm also not mistaken. Um, so I, I guess then from the ground up, it all kind of falls apart. If you can't fulfill those criteria, you know, that's really the bedrock of um, the study of infectious disease, yeah. right? And, and as we point out, they're, they're just pure logic. You want to prove something causes disease, you have to have that something and nothing else. And then you have to give it to healthy people and they get sick from it. And that's never happened in any of these studies. In fact, Tom and I have gotten letters saying, well, they're obsolete. Koch's postulates are obsolete. Uh, they're meaningless. Uh, we don't have to use them and so forth. But they are not obsolete. They're logical. They're, they're a logic thought problem of how you would prove that this causes this. First, you have to have this, and then you have to see this happen. Right. And then you have to be able to replicate that from, from person to person, it. right? Yes. You which, describe which, how you do it, and then 
other people have to show that this made this happen. Yeah. Yeah. So why, why are, just out of curiosity, why are people saying that all of a sudden these postulates are, are irrelevant? Um, and I'll just add, add a quick little quip in here. Um, when I first started looking at the postulates, um, I noticed that there was an edit on Wikipedia uh, suddenly made, I think it was May 17th or 18th, that all of a sudden these postulates no longer apply to viruses. Just just magically, you know, mid-pandemic, uh, these, these don't apply to viruses. So I'm curious as to what people are saying, like why are, why are these all of a sudden obsolete or irrelevant it's like it's like animal farm they just change the rules you know yeah well a lot of that going on these days <laughs> but there's another there's another argument against that if that's true then why did the the six major studies claiming they isolated the virus which none of them did and they admitted in writing that they didn't uh, by the way uh, they all said somebody should do Koch's postulates to see if it causes disease And then the main, the main study that was done that people send me, which we've, Andy has dissected, you know, many times, is called fulfilling Koch's postulates with SARS-CoV-2 virus. So if they're so obsolete, why is every virologist, by the way, some virologists never even heard of Koch's postulates, which is like saying, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a senator, but I've never heard of the U.S. governor. Um, and I, that may actually be the case. I don't know because I haven't asked them, but, um, that's like, you, you don't know the history of science and they say they don't know and why they do that. You know, it's like Will Rogers said, if you try to con never try to convince somebody of something is wrong, if their job depends on it. Mm. And of course, the, the fallout is that all of the policy and everything that we see going on around us is all stemming fr from this, right? It's all stemming from isolation. If you can't isolate something, you can't possibly know what that thing does. And if you can't isolate the thing, you can't say that this piece of the thing could only have come from the thing. If you mm -hmm. show me a piece of a hoof, and you say it came from a unicorn, you damn better, well better have, I have characterized the unicorn first, because otherwise I simply don't believe that it came from the unicorn. Right, which makes perfectly logical sense. When of you, course, that's when... how human beings think, except if yeah. you're a medical doctor or apparently <laughs> an alternative medical doctor. Yeah. Just going back to the photographs that we see of the tissues, And you can see these little things with spikes sticking out. Um, and, and in these pictures, you see them on the inside of the cell or inside of the tissues and on the outside. But these are pictures. These are dead pictures. They're not uh, videos of living things. And you don't know whether those things, those vi things being called viruses, are coming from the outside or they're being created in the cell and going from the inside to the outside. You can't tell from the photographs. Hmm. Hmm. So, so then, so, I mean, that, that's probably a good segue then into exosomes. And before right. we get there, you know, when people say that we've identified SARS-CoV-2, 
what exactly do they mean? I mean, have we just identified some type of genomic sequence and now we've given it the name SARS-CoV-2? And of course, we're going to talk about electromagnetics and electricity. And all of a sudden, we see a whole bunch of people get sick. And because we've tested for this genomic sequence, there we go. We've just sort of come to this conclusion that we have this disease. We've, uh, we've identified some kind of sequence that we've called SARS-CoV-2. And there we go. That's the end of the story. Perhaps you can kind of piece that together uh, for us a little bit. So what they have is they have a, a, um, a database called the genome sequence of the first SARS virus. So this and is from like 2003, right? 2003. Yeah. And that was done in the exact same way that I'm going to describe. So that supposedly is real, right? Because it's been around for 16 years. So that makes it real. Uh, just like unicorns are real because there's pictures of them from the 1700s, right? So we know if something has been around for a while, it must be real. Uh, so then they find a, you know, they basically find a, a piece of genetic material, which is about 2% of the genome. And they then compare it to the theoretical virus of 2003 and they say uh, it's about an 80% match. And then mm -hmm. they take those pieces and they generate with the computer the theoretical genome. Now, if you actually read the, the, the word that Christian Drosten, who's the Fauci of Europe, said in his original paper, uh, the, the word was, I think, ex solicito. I, I'm not sure that's the right pronunciation. Right. That means it was a theoretical genome. Hmm. Now, I can eat soup with an, uh, an actual spoon, but I can't eat soup with a theoretical spoon. Right. Sit on an actual chair, but I can't sit on an, a theoretical chair. So they constructed from about 2% of genetic sequences that matched the previously a theoretical genome in 2003. And that was based on a genome in 1990, which was also theoretical. And that was based on a genome in 1980, which was made up. Right. So, so then yeah. they have a theoretical genome of a theoretical virus, and that then they make a computer simulated picture of it. And they admit this because they say this is a, a uh, there's a Latin word, ex solicito virus, and they say, uh, you know, I can read what, they, what he said. Christian Drosten said, we aim to deploy and develop robust diagnostic methodology for use in public health laboratories without, have, without having virus material available. Right. And they I had no before. virus. Yeah. 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 The CDC says we have no quantified virus. The Canadian Health Ministry in a Freedom of Information complaint uh, when they outlined the steps for isolation said, we have no virus. Yeah. So and you know, it's funny because I've shared that, like I've shared that online and people are just like, oh, you know, that's just conspiracy theory. Like there's no way. And it's like, but it's coming from Health Canada. Like this is coming from the government through yeah. Freedom of Information. I mean, what, what is... Mm -hmm. Are they lying or why would they lie if they can't find it? I mean, I, it's, so, you know, it make any sense. conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories, a conspiracy is when 
one or more, well, more than one people believe the same thing. So mm. what I say is everybody believes in conspiracy theories, right? Yeah, because um, we all believe in something. Some people just believe stupid ones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you, you know, you also, uh, it was kind of interesting, and I'm glad that you brought up the whole computer modeling thing because so much is being based off computer models, you know, the, the, from the projections um, of deaths, uh, uh, you know, Nigel Ferguson going way back all those months. But it was very recently that I saw the Drosden papers were, were actually dissected and reviewed, and people have really called for a huge inquiry into, into that and one of the things that I gleaned from that was the generation of a genomic sequence through computer modeling and that for me was like a huge red flag I'm like well hang on a second yeah. like we're using a computer to model a genomic sequence surely we should just be able to like literally pull it out and identify it yes right it's exactly like this I tell you I want you to make a Lego castle of a 1600 uh, century castle and I make it out of Legos and I throw all the Lego pieces on the table and I say, go make the castle. And if you have any sense at all, you say, can I see a picture of the castle? Right. right. And I say, no. And you say, well, how am I gonna make an exact replica of the castle? And I say, here's a million dollars, go give it a try. <laughs> so you, you find a moat, right? Mm -hmm. And you find a turret and you find a window and you say to yourself, these must belong to a castle. And then they give you a million dollar prize for finding a moat. And then you generate with a computer the rest of the castle. And then 50 mm. years later, after you've done this for 50 years, and everybody fights about what the castle is supposed to look like, the guy who gave you the original million dollars says, by the way, King Beauregard didn't live in a castle. He was afraid of snakes. <laughs> he didn't have a castle. There is no castle. Oh, man. And well, you, you um, can generate a computer model all you want. Of, you know, people say, I've seen a picture of it, and I show them a picture of a unicorn. And I, you can show a picture of Sasquatch. And by the way, I don't even know if Sasquatch actually is, exists or not. Uh, but I kind of doubt it. But, they, but there are pictures of them. Yeah. Well, um, I guess let's just move our conversation forward because, uh, you know, the, the book itself, um, you know, when you actually spend a good chunk of time and just slow down and reading it, like we could be here for a five hour podcast quite easily because I think each of the chapters um, could really just be expanded and built upon. But just to move us forward, um, you know, one of the things that you open up with fairly early in the book is um, we talk about electricity, right? And the, the, the electric body. Um, so perhaps we can kind of talk a little bit about that, um, because what I what what I found was pretty interesting uh, that I did not know was um, when you start mapping, um, you know, human technology, uh, things like radio antennas, radio signals, and electrical signals around the Earth, and when you look back in time and you kind of like parallel that with um, other pandemics, uh, there's some pretty interesting um, things that surface. So um, yeah, perhaps I don't I don't know where you want to start with all of that, but just uh, in terms of body electric, perhaps, and uh, the fact that we've forgotten that we are actually electrical beings as much <laughs> as we are blood and flesh. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, we are very much indebted to the work of Arthur Furstenberg, The Invisible Rainbow, and that's mm. really what got me thinking because he documents that every time there was a new electronic technology, so the telegraph along the railroad lines, uh, radar, radio, 
the first time cell phones came out, there's always um, illness, an increase in deaths. And the most radical example is the Spanish flu of 1917, 1918, which killed 50 million people. And he uh, correlates that with the rollout of radio towers, uh, especially on military bases. And the real uh, interesting part of that is that during the, the flu, the US Public Health Service actually did some very good science uh, in trying to show that this was contagious. And they took sick people and they coughed on well people, they breathed on well people, they took the fluids of sick people and injected them into the well people, they took the blood of sick people and injected into the well people. And literally 100% of them did not get sick. They could not prove contagion. And it's very interesting to actually read these papers because they, they are um, saying, well, we, why can't we prove this? We know it's contagious. We know it's contagious. But they, I mean, the conclusion should have been, but it's not contagious because of the science they did. But they were just clinging to that uh, theory of contagion. So fast forward to the present, you have a lot of people getting sick at the same time. Um, contagion is an explanation for that, but we, we point out a lot of cases where people thought something was contagious and it turned out not to be. And the best example is scurvy, which occurred when a lot of men were together on a ship and one person would get sick and then another and then another. And it was a clear, it was contagion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what it really was, was a, um, a situation of nutrient deficiency in everyone involved. And that was the vitamin C deficiency. Also, um, beriberi, uh, pellagra, they thought was contagious until they finally figured out it was a B vitamin deficiency. So <laughs> we do go through a lot of these diseases that were considered contagious. And one by one, <laughs> all of those um, fall down when you actually look at what was going on at the time. So, so were they were they looking at it as a contagion simply because you know everything stemmed from the germ theory and Pasteur, and is is that why? I mean, I'm just I'm just curious as to why they wouldn't just throw in the towel and say, okay, well, it's obviously not a contagion; it must be something else. Well, uh, Pasteur was adamant that every disease had a microbe that caused it. Now he was never able to prove that himself, and his private diaries. Uh, kind of reveal this frustration. Why won't these animals get sick when I give them what I think is rabies serum or anthrax serum? And the animals just wouldn't cooperate. And then he had to make something called uh, virulent, virulent rabies, virulent anthrax, and um, or virulent smallpox, whatever. And when he took the secretions of the sick animals and then did similar to what they're doing with the viruses, uh, you know, culture them in poison cells. And then they did what was called passage, passage through other animals, again, involving a lot of, um, you know, chemicals and things. And then when they introduced that into well animals, and not just by, you know, putting it in their nose or something, usually they did it by drilling a hole in this animal skull and putting this liquid in the animal skull. Well, yeah. well that made them sick. And that was considered proof of contagion. Huh. So they were they were cheating to kind of maintain the illusion 
of this theory, this contagious theory. And I like to think of the theory of contagion as the extreme manifestation of materialistic science. Uh, materialistic science sees the universe as hostile. If it's, if it's a bacteria, it must be hostile. If it's a little um, particle in the cell, we call a virus, it must be hostile. Everything's hostile and you're always competing with everything else. And we're seeing that it's extreme manifestation now with the COVID where you're supposed to tell on your neighbors and uh, you know everybody's an enemy. That, that's where we've come to. Instead of this beautiful human family that's uh, cooperating with each other and building cultures and putting on plays and, you know, creating schools and libraries and all these wonderful things that human beings do with each other and together as, as a culture, mm-hmm. now everyone is an enemy. Well, yeah, I mean, it, the, the it destroys language. culture. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the macrocosm uh, and the microcosm, right? Because I think, you know, for a lot of people listening to this show anyway, they're, they're quite well read for the most part. And, um, you know, the research that's coming out now on the microbiome is just astounding. I mean, every day, connections of the microbiome on overall health. And it's interesting because I think if you ask people even as, as you know, as short back, if, you, if that's a word, as five years ago or 10 years ago, and you said the word bacteria, most people would say bad. You know, bacteria, bad. And of course, virus, bad. And what we now understand is that we have, in addition to a microbiome, we also have a virome. We've got fungi, we've got yeast, we've got viruses, bacteria that are all part of us. And of course, as an individual, but then when you map that out onto larger society, we now have people and communities and cultures that are made up of all of these um, organisms and so, yeah, I think that, that you know, I, looking at that as a bad thing and then attacking yeah. it all the time, I mean, this is, the, you yeah. know. We're, we're well, under certain conditions, um, I don't know about viruses, but under certain conditions, bacteria and fungi will produce poisons, mycotoxins, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, uh, and if they're in sewage, they'll pr- produce poisons. And that's what makes you sick. It's not the actual animal. It is the condition that causes the microorganism uh, to uh, create these toxins. So, so let, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, and I, I don't know, you feel free to weigh in, Tom, at any point. But, you know, what, what do you think then, um, and perhaps we're preaching to the choir, you know, what is the cause of disease then? I mean, if it's not contagion, then what exactly is it? And uh, why is it that some people are affected and others are not affected? Um, big question, but uh, I don't know where you want to start. <laughs> You know, the, the irony of that question is if you look at how do you get a, how do you do a quote viral culture, right? So here's the history of it. They took uh, snot basically from, or something, the secretion of, of a chicken pox lesion and they filtered it. So they didn't, they didn't have a pure virus and they put it on tissue culture and it didn't grow. So then they said, well, we, if we put it on minimal nutrient medium, which is mm. basically starving it, then it still won't grow. And now we're talking about kidney tissue here. So then I'll, give, I'll put in minimal nutrient medium and genomycin, that's an antibiotic, which is nephro-kidney toxic, and amphoterable, otherwise known as amphotericin, which is another nephrotoxic, kidney toxic drug. Then, lo and behold, the kidney tissue breaks down. 
See, we've proven the virus kills the tissue. What they've proven is if you starve and poison the tissue, it will break down. Now, that how do you make somebody sick? You starve and poison them. Right. The viruses. Uh, so it could be scurvy where you starve them of vitamin C. It could be pellagra. That's one of the B vitamins. I don't remember which one. It could be that you starve them of good fats so that their, you know, membranes become floppy and so they are more susceptible to electromagnetic uh, field poisoning. You could introduce toxins like lead or mercury or arsenic or cadmium. And uh, you could put metal plates in people. That makes them be receivers for electromagnetic fields. You could poison them with glyphosate, aluminum. You could inject them with polysorbate 80. You could inject them with nanoparticles of aluminum. Antifreeze uh, is one of my favorite. You could um, encourage them to eat a lot of ice cream, which has antifreeze in it, and then their kidneys start to degenerate because of all the antifreeze crystals. Right. You, you could 50 years ago, knowing you're, about, you're going to do this someday, uh, put out the fact that a vegan diet will save us all. And then you, you get a bunch of people to do that for 40 years, and then they half of them become EMF sensitive, and then you've got an epidemic on your hands. Mm. So there's, uh, I, I, get, I give these people, whoever it is, credit for coming up with very creative ways of starving and poisoning us uh, because they've been really good at it. Um, so when you say susceptibility, you know, why do some people get sick and not in others? I, I had a great story about this, which really convinced me about this whole thing. So I, I had a guy whose job it was to put in high-end high Wi-Fi systems in very rich people's houses. Uh, he did that for 10 years, strong, healthy, vigorous guy, never got sick. And he went two hours every day surfing. And so he was out in the sun, in the salt water, two hours a day, one day iodine by the way a lot of iodine mm -hmm. yeah so he's 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 good eats a nourishing traditions diet surfs every day one day get falls off his surfboard breaks his wrist uh they put a metal plate in his wrist right at his acupuncture points uh a week later after he goes back to work he's so sick he can't get out of bed because he can't surf anymore and he's got a steel steel plate in his wrist and he comes to me and says, what happened? They can't figure out why I have chronic fatigue and heart arrhythmias. I said, because they put an antenna in you and now you're sick. Mm. So everybody's different. You know, everybody has a different detoxification. Everybody has a different diet. Everybody has different susceptibility. If you've got a lot of metals in you because you're mineral deficient, you know, you're not eating Celtic salt, you're, you know, all the, the whole nourishing traditions thing. Uh, you don't eat bone broth, you're going to get sick. So yeah. that's where we are. And, and the big one is the vegetable oils. A lot of yeah. uh, industrial seed oils with rancid polyunsaturated oils in them. And these get built into your cell membranes, your tissue membranes. And as Tom says, then your tissues become leaky and floppy. 
And again, the tissues won't, can't hold a charge. It's like, it's like the insulation is frayed off your wiring and then you're much more susceptible to these electromagnetic fields. Mm. So let's talk about the electromagnetic fields then, because I think that was you know, something that you opened up with in the elevator pitch. And of course, a lot <laughs> of people have made uh, noise about 5G, um, the rollout of 5G. And, you know, of course, as you outline in the book, you know, all of these hotspots around the world, um, there's very, very strong correlations with the rollout of 5G. So I don't know where you want to start with that. Well, or how you want to actually, it. Uh, since we wrote the book, we, when we wrote the book, it just seemed like perfect epidemiological correlation. Uh, it started in Wuhan, where they rolled out 5G. And 5G is the millimeter waves. It's basically microwaves. And then... Um, Northern Europe and then uh, New York and then the big cities. But now we're seeing it in the rural areas. And so people have said, well, you see, it, it can't be 5G because they don't have the millimeter waves in the rural areas. Well, what they have done on all of the towers is uh, all the cell towers all over the country is install what they call 5G light. And that's the mobile system. And it's actually a lower frequency than uh, 4G. It's the big round things in boxes that you see on all the towers now. And uh, so they're not millimeter waves. And so presumably this is gonna be safer than the millimeter waves in the cities. However, there's one little inconvenient fact, and that is a paper that came out of Iran of all places in 2011, and they were looking at different frequencies uh, and how they affected the brain. And the frequency that was most resonant with the brain tissue and set up standing waves in the brain and caused interesting spiking patterns in the brain was 600 megahertz. And that is exactly the frequency of 5G light. That's what they're doing <laughs> on all these towers. Uh, what I'm interested to know is this second wave is it affecting um, the brain more than the lungs because the millimeter waves affect the lungs? I don't, we don't know. Nobody's asking these questions because they're so fixated on the viral theory. But people are getting sick. Uh, if we can believe the emergency rooms, the hospitals are full. And this is not just because they're testing everybody. I mean, that's part of the problem. Uh, which we'll get to in a minute, yeah. Yeah, honestly, our health departments, our officials have been so incredibly incompetent and stupid about this whole pandemic, whatever you want to call it. They're not observing properly. They're not asking the right questions. They're just saying, yeah, we do have a problem, but we're never going to solve this problem if we're fixated on a virus. Sorry. Um, no, that's okay. So one, one of the things that I, that I did kind of glean from the book as well, which I saw pop up over and over again, is the, um, I, I guess, the bringing on of flu-like symptoms, among many other uh, symptoms, through uh, electromagnetic activity. Um, I don't know if, if anyone wants to speak about that, because, you know, uh, I guess initially when we didn't understand as much about COVID-19, uh, you know, people were being put on ventilators, um, which yeah. is the wrong yeah. thing to do. And then other people said, oh, no, it mimics more, uh, it looks more like high altitude sickness and um, low oxygen. So I don't know if you want to speak to that, um, either one of you, if you want to speak to that relative to, to 5G and EMFs. 
It's just like they gave aspirin during the, the flu epidemic of 1918, the absolute worst thing they could have done. And a lot of people died needlessly because they were doing the wrong thing. And same with the ventilators. I'm sure Tom can expand on this, but mm. it all has to do with money. If, you, if, somebody's, if somebody's admitted to the hospital and they um, um, say it's COVID-19 and put them on a ventilator, they get more money. Right, right. Especially in the U.S. anyway. I mean, I, I don't think it's like that here. I might be wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here in Canada, I mean, the healthcare system is, is quite different. Um, yeah. I don't know if they're incentivized or what's going on behind the scenes there. Uh, but Tom, I don't know if you wanted to add on that uh, at all um, with EMFs and, and these COVID symptoms. I mean, I have a few uh, doctors that I'm sort of mentoring and one of them uh, works as a hospitalist in a New York City uh, hospital. And so he's seen a lot of people um, with, quote, COVID. Now, I think I would distinguish, you know, the vast majority of people who have, who are diagnosed with COVID actually just have the usual stuff that makes people sick. And so that, that's, not, that's not new or different. And then there's a very small subset in the places that Sally talked about and probably increasing who have something different. And that's the people that I'm talking about. And they have basically symptoms of, of hypoxia and degeneration of their lungs and so-called cytokine storm, which mm-hmm. means a hyperactive response of their inflammatory system. Now, we know going back to the 70s, because the Russians or the Soviets, I guess, at that time, and the U.S. Naval Intelligence Service actually did studies on millimeter waves, and they found that they degraded the oxygen in the atmosphere. They interfered with the mitochondrial ability to generate uh, ATP, which is mischaracterized as fuel, but let's just say as fuel, uh, and... So essentially that's how they create hypoxia. So that's the uh, altitude sickness hypoxia part. And essentially what happens is uh, the, the, any non-native electromagnetic field degrades the coherence of the water in your tissues. The DNA is embedded in the water. The water determines the expression of the DNA And if you have a degraded water, your body tries to essentially flush it out by having increasing the temperature so it melts the water so you can actually flush out the toxins. This thing that we call the flu, which is fever and and flushing out, is basically you have a poison grape dissolved in your jello, so you melt the jello and then you poop it out. And Mm. you poop it out through creation of these particles called exosomes. So we, we know all this story down to the details with the, with the sort of science and research. We know that if you degrade the coherence of the water, which is what millimeter waves in any electromagnetic field does, your body will respond very specifically by having a febrile inflammatory reaction. You know, I just would ask people, if you put debris in your lungs, how do you expect to get it out? And it's very simple. You flush it out with mucus. And unfortunately, the doctors are confused, and they call that illness. And it's not. 
you know, it's, it's, no, it's, it's not, it's not. It's, <laughs> yeah. not. it's just a delusion. So, yeah. so I'm, I'm assuming then, you know, um, and again, I'm just kind of dumbing things down for people who might not be up to speed on, on all of this, but, you know, I'm assuming then if we kind of added the layer of um, elderly people, people with comorbidities like diabetes, um, cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, and then add toxicity on top of it and then add EMF radiation. I mean, that, that to me seems like the perfect storm um, that's going to bring on all of these types of symptoms, surely. I just read a paper yesterday uh, that said that what they find is it's people who have very strong allergic reactions, who are very sensitive to chemicals and foods, they are the ones who are suffering from the EMF sensitivity also. So those two things go hand in hand. You know, when you're just talking about disease, disease is the body's strategy, whether it's getting mucus in the lungs to cough up poisons or creating a tumor to encapsulate a poison. Uh, these are the body's strategies. And if we look at the, these uh, strategies as a disease, we're not going to do things right. Uh, mm -hmm. The disease is a, um, the body's attempts to right things. And if the disease is not successful, then, then we die, right? But if the disease is successful, uh, then the body has done the right thing and we recover. So w we need to just change our mindset. It's not, we try to suppress the symptoms because we think yeah. they're the disease and ra rather we need to support the symptoms because they're the strategy. Exactly, exactly. And again, preaching to the choir. Um, so uh, I, I guess this might be a good segue into our final segment here, but um, everyone that is running around being diagnosed with COVID all of a sudden, um, you know, you've made a lot of noise, Tom, about PCR testing. And, uh, you know, as, as we're witnessing around the world, um, I don't know what it's like in the US right now, but here in Canada, we are ramping up testing like no one's business. Yeah. It is insane. I mean, literally, like dozens of 1000s of tests every single day now. And what's interesting, when you look at the graphs, you know, it's basically the, the, the cases go up, um, the recovery rate goes up, and the death rate stays completely flat. That. Um, so, so I, I don't know if, if you can just, because um, I like the way that you explain it in the book. And also, I think it would be very useful for people to understand what exactly, like, how does a PCR test work? And what exactly are we doing to diagnose all these cases? Um, because, you know, if, again, logically thinking about it all, like if we had a very serious, deadly contagion of some type, um, naturally, as the cases go up, the deaths would also go up you know, in line with that, like surely. So something's not adding up with uh, cases going up and death rates uh, staying low. So Tom, if I can just hand it over to you and, and uh, get you to go, go on that, that'd be great. So a PCR test is not a diagnostic tool. It's a manufacturing device to make more DNA, uh, period. And that's why the founder of it, Karen Mullis said, you can't use this to diagnose a viral illness nor can you use it to find a new virus, period. Mm. And so <laughs> that's the end of the story. Yeah. There is no- You would think. <laughs> what? You would you think would it's think. the end yeah. of the story, but apparently it's not out there when you start speaking right. to people. No, so, no, no. <laughs> but so what you're doing is saying, I have this piece, which is, you know, like 12 base pairs out of 30,000. That's the letters that make up the genome. 
So they're saying, I can find this segment of 12 letters, and I know that that only could have come from this virus and nowhere else. Now, never mind that if you do an actual survey called a BLAST survey, you find that same segment in 93 human genomes, human chromosomes, and approximately 91 microbes have the same sequence. So the idea that this is unique to a imaginary coronavirus is pure nonsense. Mm. So, so then they say, we don't have the genome, we don't have the virus, but somehow we can say that this segment could have only come from a virus that we haven't seen. I mean, you know, I, I'm to the point where, you know, it isn't seem to be doing any good for me to keep saying this. You people out there need to clearly understand this. And when your doctor or your virologist or your health person says this is a valid test, you have to ask them, how could this possibly be? And yeah. because, because it's, you, you can't do a surrogate test, which means a substitute test, unless you know who this, the actual sequence of the virus, that this sequence is present in no other living thing, which frankly is impossible, which is why Carrie Mullis said you can't use this for diagnosis. Yeah. So, there, and, and I just want to be very clear. There is no false positives to this test. There are no false negatives to this test. There are only falses. Okay. And, and you could say, well, Tom, why do really sick people, I would say, tend to test positive more? Uh, the reason is A, because you're looking for it, and B, because if you're sick, meaning you've, you're genetic material is degraded, then you show up more soon positive depending on the number of cycles you do. Uh, so it isn't a test for a virus. It's a test of whether you're breaking down, if any. <laughs> I mean, it's not even really that. But now, here's the problem with it. it depending on the number of, number of amplification cycles you do, you'll get something like 80% positives at 40, and you'll get something like 10% if you do 30 cycles. That means double it 30 times or 40 times. This becomes a very powerful tool because if you wanna say that a population is getting more cases, all you have to do is put the cycles up to 40. Right. Then if you roll out a vaccine or you make everybody stand on their head or you make everybody put their finger up their nose and then you say that works, then you just put the cycles down to 30 and next thing you know, you've got only 10% cases. So it's a, it's, it was a boon to people wanting to create a pandemic. You could never create a pandemic without a PCR test. Right. And, and I should point out as well, um, again, I, I don't know how it is in other countries, um, so I will speak from a strictly Canadian perspective right now, but we actually have, um, you know, it's published data that we're running 38 to 45 cycles. Right. So cycle Which threshold means you're going to get 80% positive. 
Well, and, and I think what's interesting as well is then, you know, people go, oh, well, look, but you're asymptomatic, right? You're, and it's like, well, of course I'm asymptomatic because I'm not actually sick. You know, there's this. Yeah, you, you have nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's, it's amazing how there's just this gap in thinking, right? And when you point this out to people, they're just like, oh, well, you know, who are you? Like, surely the experts are doing it correctly. The science is there. Follow the science, follow the science. And I'm like, but if you do follow the science, this is kind of the conclusion that you get to, which is exactly what we're talking about. But somehow yeah. it just seems to have escaped the, the, the general population. That's Except something. I would disagree. There's no gap in thinking. There's simply no thinking. All right. Well, <laughs> I'm trying to be a little bit, uh, a little bit nice, you know. <laughs> yeah, but there, but this is not. This is no mistake either. The way you get people to stop thinking is you you say things like the following. So when when the head of infectious disease at Wake Forest was asked about the meaning of antibody tests, he said, and I'll more or less quote. Antibody tests are important because if you have positive antibodies, it means you were either sick or you weren't sick. You either had the virus or you didn't have the virus, and you're either immune or you weren't immune. Wow. Now, most people hear that would think, yeah, this is very complicated. I'm going to stop thinking because I don't know what the hell this guy just said. Uh, and only about 1% or less think, this guy's a nutcase. Yeah. Because of course you're either sick or you weren't sick. That's the only choices there are. <laughs> of course you're either immune or you're not immune because that's the only choices there are. You can't go into a refrigerator store and the guy say, yeah, it'll either keep your food cold or it won't. And, you know, you basically put those people in an insane asylum. Yeah. And somehow we elevate them to the head of government. Well, that's because they use all these Latin phrases and they wear white coats with something that looks like a crucifix around their neck. And we've elevated a, a medicine to a religion. And there's no better example of this is when Pasteur died, there was an engraving in the paper showing a woman kneeling at an altar and Pasteur above like an angel or God looking down on the altar. And all, what are, what's on the altar? But all these flasks and, uh, you know, test tubes and things. So we have... Mm just substituted one religion for another. And, you know, um, I'm not against, I'm not trying to sound irreligious, but if religion makes you turn off your thinking, uh, it's not doing you any good. Yeah, well, and I think, that, I think that's where we're at right now you know, is um, we are there right now where, um, you know, people are so fully captured by all of this, despite the mountains of data. And, you know, of course, hindsight is always twenty twenty. We can now look back at things. Well, that's that's um, what year it is, right? It's 2020. It's either yeah. going to make us have perfect vision or we're going to stay blind. Well, um, let's hope it's uh, perfect vision and uh, yeah. <laughs> let, let's see what's going to happen. Um, so as I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to wade too far into the whole vaccine discussion here. You know, we've been going about an hour or so, but I will just ask you one question. Do you think that the vaccine has something to do with um, or, or it's going to interact or have some kind of impact with the electromagnetic frequencies? Um, with the, you know, the, the amplification of 5G and all of that stuff? Is there some kind of connection there? in your mind? Well, I think you need 5G because the vaccines apparently leave a little invisible tattoo or maybe even have a chip in them. And uh, you need the 5G to read those. Why do, why do we need 5G? Who's clamoring for 5G? I mean, it's much yeah. better to put everything in wires and have all your houses 
with files, yeah. fiber optics, but they need 5G for surveillance. Yeah. And if you keep track, you know, all the social distancing and the testing and do you have it or not, uh, you need 5G for that. There's not enough capacity in the other, in the 4G. And of course they have uh, promoted this as, you know, the internet of things is gonna keep track of everything in your house and you'll know if you've run out of milk and I mean, I, I know if I've run out of milk the old-fashioned way. I just don't have it in my fridge. But Up in the fridge, <laughs> yeah. Apparently, I need a computer to tell me I've run out of milk. So. Yeah, well, uh, certainly interesting times that we're living in. Um, so I just want to thank you both for, for taking the time out today. And, and I know that there's so much more in the book that I would love to discuss, but um, <laughs> just to prevent listener fatigue, um, I think, uh, you know, an hour-ish or so is, is pretty good. But I do want to just ask you, is there anything else you feel that we haven't touched on well, that you would love I, I to talk say, about, please? You know, uh, the book was banned on Amazon, but it's widely available. All you have to do is Google the contagion myth, and there'll be many sources, including Tom's website, uh, drtomcowan.com. It's on Barnes and Noble, Books a Million. I think in Canada, it's from Simon and Schuster. But okay. the book is is available. You just can't get it on on Amazon. Yeah, which is fine. So we'll put up some links there, and of course, any links that you feel um, you know want me to share with uh, with the audience, uh, we'll do that as well. Uh, Tom, any final words from your side, or are you good? I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much. Um, a fascinating discussion. And I would encourage anyone listening to this um, on the podcast or watching this, uh, definitely grab the book. Um, it is not a, a an astronomically large or long book to read, um, but I got to say the information in there is, uh, is pretty compelling. So once again, great job on the book. And uh, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having us.